this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. We're continuing our series in Revelation, and uh, we're, we're getting toward the end here. Uh, and parts of a little bit previous to the chapter we're going to read right now, God, or the, the prophet John, describes fallen Babylon as a, um, how do I say this nicely? A harlot. <laughs> and the kings of the earth have all gone and spent some time with her. All these nations of the earth are just lusting after this political and worldly corrupted power. It's like they just can't help it. They need to have this worldly power. And then the angels spend a few chapters warning about the fall of fallen Babylon and then celebrate how doomed fallen Babylon is. Remember, fallen Babylon represents uh, Rome. It represents corruptive power. It, it represents the sin and the devil. All of this is, is all kind of one piece in the book of Revelation. And the, the angels are celebrating how doomed fallen Babylon is and how completely defeated they're fixing to be. And then, then we get to one of my favorite parts of the book. And that's what we're going to pick up reading in our scripture this morning in Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, obviously this writer is Jesus. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on his horse, the sword that came from his mouth. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I got this friend from high school and college. His name's Billy. And when Billy and I were friends, uh, he kind of looked like me. A little bit portly fella. And uh, we hung out a lot. And uh, 
ate a lot of good food together and just kind of had a good time. And Billy moved to Texas, and I lost touch with Billy for quite a while. Um, just didn't see him for a while. We weren't connected on social media much. And then, um, so I didn't see him for a while. And then I saw a picture of Billy, and dude had been working out. I mean, Billy was jacked. He had been to the gym. He would lost a bunch of weight, and he was strong. It's like, man, you miss a guy for a few years and he goes and gets all healthy on you and stuff. Sometimes I think this is what we think that Jesus is like. Right? When, when, when Jesus was on earth the first time, we get humble Jesus, meek and mild. Saying, let the children come to me, dying on the cross for our sins. And then he goes away for a little bit, and we don't see him for a little bit. And then he comes back riding a white horse with a road dipped in blood with a sword coming on his mouth so that he can fight, wage war against the nations, and so the birds can feast on their flesh. It's like, wow, Jesus really got ripped in the meantime, didn't he? Jesus hit the gym while he was up in heaven at the right hand of God. It's kind of what it seems like, right? But... Um, there's something about that that just, just doesn't sit right with me. It's not, there's something that doesn't seem right about the same Jesus who told me to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me only meant, oh, just do that for only so long because when I come back, I'm going to kick some tail and take some names and then you don't have to love those folks anymore because I'm just going to uh, murder them and get their blood on my robe. It seems like Jesus is completely changing character at the end here. He has this one character for, for a long time, and then once he gets to the end, he just runs out of patience and goes hog wild. Like he's coming to beat fallen Babylon at her own game. So how do we reconcile the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels with the Jesus that we read about in Revelation because they seem like kind of two separate guys. In the 1916, Georgia Tech uh, played a football game against Cumberland, and it was known as the biggest blowout in football history. You might have to say, Matt, you have to go back 100 years to find a time when Georgia Tech was impressive. And to you, this is what I believe the Word of God is. Shut up. <laughs> but 100 years ago, Georgia Tech was impressive, and they had the biggest blowout in football history. Georgia Tech rushed for 1,650 uh, 1, yards, and Cumberland didn't score a single touchdown. In fact, they did not have a single first down in the whole game. The score of that game was 222 to 0. Oh. We use I'm just I'm just reveling in Georgia Tech being good, even even if it was even if it was 100 years ago. I I that it just does my soul good. But when we talk about sports victories like this, when we talk about these huge blowouts, we use war language. Man, that was a bloodbath, wasn't it? Or 
they got absolutely murdered out there. Or Georgia Tech really killed Cumberland a hundred years ago. Or, oh my gosh, Cumberland just got slaughtered out there. That's the kind of language that we use to describe that utter defeat at the hands of an enemy. Of course, that language describes the extent to which Cumberland College was beat, but it doesn't describe the method by which they were beat, right? Georgia Tech did not physically murder anybody on Cumberland, as far as I know. Although, I might not be surprised with a scroll like that. The method by which Georgia Tech beat Cumberland was by scoring a truly gruesome number of touchdowns while allowing not a single first down. So we're using this war and this death language to talk about the utter amount that the defeat happened while we're not literally talking about the method by which that defeat was happening. And I think that there's a similar thing at work in the book of Revelation. Revelation is a symbolic book. It's about a dream that John had, a vision that John had, that God gave him. And these symbols are pointing to the spiritual truth, that invisible spiritual truth behind these things. And so while maybe he's talking about a, a bloodbath of victory of Jesus over fallen Babylon... I believe that they're talking about the extent to which Jesus is defeating fallen Babylon, not necessarily the method. The central picture of Revelation, uh, in Jesus, uh, of Jesus in Revelation is of a lamb that was slain. Remember back in the early part of the book when John was looking around heaven for this powerful lion of Judah that could open the scroll, and instead of the lion, there was a lamb who was slain, who came to open the scroll. It's the central picture of Jesus, and it doesn't deviate. This Jesus who's coming on the white horse is the lamb who was slain, and the lamb who was slain is Jesus. So I don't really buy the idea that Jesus' character is different, that Jesus 2.0 in Revelation 19 is a violent conqueror. I believe that the Jesus that we read about on the white horse is still the lamb. He is coming to conquer Satan, to conquer fallen Babylon. There's no doubt about it. And he's going to conquer it so bad that it's going to be an absolute bloodbath. But I don't believe that he's going to actually come to kill people. So here's some of the things that I think that we need to be aware of when we're interpreting this text. First of all, you know, Jesus is coming with this robe dipped in blood, it says. But I want us to consider something. He's showing up with the robe dipped in blood ahead of the battle. He hasn't fought anybody yet. He hasn't gone to war yet. He's showing up at the beginning of the battle with the robe dipped in blood. Y'all, I'm pretty sure... That it's his own blood that's on the robe. Remember, uh, when, when we were talking about the saints, the 144,000 saints, it said that they wore robes that were white, that were 
cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I believe that Jesus is showing up to war out of self-sacrifice. The battle hasn't happened yet. The blood is Jesus' own blood on his, on his robes. And then he's not slaying people with a, a physical sword. Remember, the weapon is the word. They say that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. And the, the sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus is fighting with his words. His words are that convict. They don't kill. The word's all he needs. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, cuts through the lies and the falseness and the, the utter depravity of fallen Babylon to convict and to convert, not to kill. It says he's going to rule with an iron rod. Iron was the hardest substance they could imagine in the ancient world. It symbolizes how his reign is going to be thorough and unchallenged. But it's not the kind of rule that's coercive. It's the kind of rule that we comes about through forgiveness and self-sacrifice and love. The character of Jesus has not changed from the character of the Gospels. He is, is having this, this victory that's going undefeated. It's described with this war language because that is the kind of language that shows it is going to be an utter, unparalleled victory. It's going to be a bloodbath for, for fallen Babylon. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is waging physical war against people. It means that his, his reign and his victory is going to be absolute. He's treading the winepress of the grapes of the wrath of God. Y'all, I'm, I'm convinced that this wrath is reserved for Satan. It's reserved for the enemy, not directed at the humans who are going to be killed. Now, just because I believe that God's wrath is reserved for Satan, that doesn't mean that I don't think people are, gonna, are not going to be caught up in that wrath. If you think about stomping out the grapes, right? If God is stomping out Satan, and I am determined to join Satan, and I place myself underfoot... Well, I'm going to get stomped too. So, so God's stomping out these, the wrath that's reserved for the enemy. But I believe that he gives people the choice. If you want to throw yourself underfoot and get stomped along with Satan, you might get stomped too. But Jesus isn't out to stomp you. He's out to forgive you. He's out to rescue you. If you get stomped underfoot, it's because you made a choice to go with Satan, not because God was trying to stomp you out. So Christ comes and he defeats Satan and he binds him up and he throws the beasts alive into the fiery pit. That's the end game here. But y'all, he won't beat fallen Babylon at their own game. He won't conquer fallen Babylon by using the same power of violence and coercion that fallen Babylon uses against their enemies. Jesus will defeat Satan and fallen Babylon by proving once and for all that the sacrificial power of the lamb that was slain is victorious over the kind of power that would coerce and dominate 
and kill. He will defeat fallen Babylon by finishing the work that he started on the cross. He will use his own blood and the word from his mouth, the words of his teaching that are the same as they've always been to deal the final blow to Satan. And then he'll usher in a time of peace through his reign. In the first week of this series, we talked about how the whole book is really all about Jesus. And it's so true. Jesus is the king of all creation. Jesus reigns supreme. Jesus doesn't have to change who he is to win against fallen Babylon. He will win by being who he is. He doesn't have to stoop to the world's level to beat Satan. He doesn't have to engage in violence and destruction and coercion to beat Satan at his own game. He will defeat Satan through the power of love, through the power of self-sacrifice, and through the power of forgiveness. That is the invisible reality that all of Revelation is pointing to. Jesus Christ is king. Fallen Babylon will fail. No question to it. So the only question that remains is with us. Whose side are we on? Are we going to side with Jesus, the victorious king? Or are we going to side with fallen Babylon? Y'all, it's easy to say that Jesus is king. It's easy to proclaim that with your mouth. But it's another thing to renounce the values of fallen Babylon in order to live it. To make Jesus the king of our lives, we've got to reject materialism. We've got to reject the worship of money. We've got to reject the power and violence of the world. We've got to reject our selfish way of living, reject the idols in our lives, and pledge loyalty to Jesus and him alone. It's not about how loud we can say it. It's about how thoroughly we can live it. Making Jesus the king of our lives means rejecting every other thing that could be a competitor. And y'all, I'm so bad at doing this. I love to flirt with all the other stuff, flirt with the idols, flirt with money and fame and comfort and power and my own ego. It's like I believe I can have all this stuff around, but I'm not worshiping all the idols. I just like to have them around. And Jesus fades more and more away, and the idols come further and further to the front. But the idols will be destroyed one day. Fallen Babylon is doomed. Everything that doesn't make Jesus more and more the king of everyday life becomes more and more of a waste of our time and our resources when we have an eternal perspective. So the question is, whose side are we on? Are we on the side of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who will exercise the power of the Lamb to purge Satan and purge fallen Babylon once and for all? Or are we flirting with the powers of fallen Babylon while pretending to pay allegiance to King Jesus? We can see from the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 that Declaring Jesus our king actually costs us something, and it costs us something dearly. But we've also seen the reward for being faithful. When we hold firm to our allegiance to King Jesus, we receive the ultimate reward. We receive a new creation, an eternity in the presence of King Jesus. So let's take some time today to reflect, 
to evaluate our allegiances, to make sure that in word and in deed, we're living like Jesus is really our king. Because he is coming again. He is going to be victorious. And he's coming to set us free. So we can choose. Do we want to be set free by King Jesus? Or do we want to throw ourselves under his feet while he stomps out Satan? Those are our options. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will give us a blessing. I pray that you will inspire us to know that your character does not change. You're not a lamb who was slain one moment in a violent, conquering hero the next moment. You're always the lamb who was slain. And that lamb power, that self-sacrificial power is what will take down fallen Babylon once and for all. And God, I pray that you will give us the courage to love you enough, to love our neighbors enough, to join you in that work of destroying Babylon and not joining Babylon ourselves. Bless us, Father. In your name I pray. Amen.